large multinationals are in a difficult situation right now. I think there is going to be a, a big shift in approach to compliance. Sanctions in most parts of the world is not simply a cost of doing business issue. Criminal liability often does uh, attach. It's not enough to take at face value what's presented to you on, on paper. Companies really do need to push um, beyond kind of a, a first glance and approval when they're um, entering a new jurisdiction, when they're getting into business with a, a new partner. Hi, you're listening to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. And in this episode, we want to provide businesses with an overview and update on Canada's economic sanctions regime. Sanctions compliance continues to become rapidly complex. The past 12 months in particular have seen significant developments in sanctions regimes, not just in Canada, but across the world in response, of course, to the war in Ukraine, as well as other conflicts and human rights abuses taking place across the globe. In this conversation, we hear about how Canada's sanctions are implemented under a patchwork of statutes and regulations, and how depending on the nature and location of your activity, it is very possible that certain conduct could also be engaging sanctions laws of another jurisdiction. Compounding the complexity for companies is the limited guidance that we've received to date from Global Affairs Canada, which is the body that administers Canada's sanctions regime. We hope this discussion will help businesses and compliance teams in particular in their understanding of how to navigate the current sanctions framework, including steps to take to reduce the risk of violating sanctions laws and what to do if businesses find themselves in a transaction or a relationship that may be the subject of an economic sanction. To talk us through these issues, we welcome back Alison Fitzgerald, a partner in our Ottawa office whose practice focuses on international trade, investment and arbitration. Alison regularly advises clients on economic sanctions, export controls and business ethics across a number of industry sectors, including oil and gas, construction, natural resources and defence procurement. Joining Alison is Stephen Natras, head of the regulations and investigations team in Canada and also based in Ottawa. Stephen focuses on a variety of international trade, regulatory and economic sanctions matters and has advised on internal investigations across multiple jurisdictions with a practice that also covers competition, privacy and anti-spam law. If you have any questions about the content covered in this episode or would like to contact our guest speakers, please reach out at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. Okay, Stephen, Alison, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. So this episode is about Canadian economic sanctions. What do we mean when we talk about economic sanctions? So I think it, it may be helpful to start off with, you know, we, we've heard about sanctions, uh, particularly in the last 12 months, but sanctions itself or economic sanctions are not a defined term. Rather, it refers to a set of targeted measures that are aimed to, to restrict, disrupt, or prohibit transactions with a specific target um, that the government has in mind. In, in Canada, there's a number of pieces of legislation that enact Canada's uh, economic sanctions regime. There's the Special Economic Measures Act, or SEMA. There's the United Nations Act, the Justice for Victims of Corrupt Foreign Public Officials Act, also known as the Magnitsky Act. And then the Freezing Assets of Corrupt Foreign Public Officials Act, or the Freezing Assets Act. And each of these pieces of legislation does something a little bit different um, and was created for a slightly different purpose. So the Special Economic Measures Act uh, was created to enact Canada's uh, independent sanctions against its own targets. Uh, the United Nations Act um, follows on from Canada's obligations uh, with the United States. Nations Security Council, so where the UN Security Council 
uh, implements sanctions. This is the piece of legislation that Canada uses to uh, follow what the UN Security Council is doing. The Magnitsky Act is is really used to target specific individuals um, who are believed to be involved in kind of human rights abuses or or corrupt uh, uh, acts. And then the Freezing Assets Act um, is used at the request of a foreign country to block uh, assets of certain individuals who've been involved in corrupt acts in their home country um, that Canada implements at the request of that foreign country. So maybe I'll I'll jump in um, just to um, expand on some of the points that Stephen made. Um, typically, when Canada implements sanctions, it does so in coordination with allied states. So obviously, when it is implementing sanctions under the UN Act, it's doing so pursuant to a UN resolution. All UN member states are expected to follow suit. Um, when it implements sanctions under its own autonomous regime, it's still typically it's working with allied states. Uh, and so what you will often see is it's moving generally in concert with um, our neighbor to the south in the United States, with the European Union, with the UK, um, you'll see a, a resonance of our sanctions against particular countries, or terrorist groups in all of these other jurisdictions. In terms of the foreign policy behind the use of these tools, the impetus behind sanctions is normally to bring about change, to bring about regime change, to bring about policy change, generally speaking, to bring about a change in conduct that Canada has determined is sanctionable on the basis of one of the provisions, for example, in our autonomous sanctions regime, Special Economic Measures Act or under the Magnitsky Act. As Stephen mentioned, where there is an observed or believed abuse of power by a foreign government regime or where there is an act of aggression, uh, the Canadian government uh, may determine uh, that it is going to respond by uh, means of uh, imposing sanctions in order to shape uh, the outcome uh, of that exercise of aggression um, or imposition of a regime or human rights abuse. Of course, while Canada normally seeks to work in concert with allied states, sanctions do not always align perfectly, and the non-alignment of sanctions regimes can not only reduce the effectiveness of sanctions for their intended purpose, but can also cause serious challenges for supply chains. So, I mean, maybe that's a useful jumping off point to talk about the example, the, the elephant in the room. I mean, can you ground that kind of foreign policy structure? For the listener, in terms of the international response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, Canada has implemented sanctions against Russia as a result of um, the aggression in Ukraine. Uh, they've done so under um, our autonomous regime. Uh, there are no UN sanctions in place currently against Russia, uh, but we uh, have been building out progressively sanctions against Russia during the course of the past year and continuing into this year in response to uh, the steps taken by the Russian government in Ukraine. The Canadian government has also implemented sanctions in respect of uh, certain of the breakaway regions in Ukraine, um, where they are de facto under Russian control. And um, as I mentioned before, when acting under our autonomous regime, Canada normally is working with its allies, and there is right now a strong um, alliance of Western states 
that have taken a firm position with respect to uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Um, and there's a high level of coordination, both in the sanctions packages that have been rolled out, as well as enforcement efforts across jurisdictions with respect to uh, those those sanctions. Yeah, and obviously that that uniformity and consistency and response across sanctions is essential to their efficacy. They can have the effect of, you know, suffocating uh, a, 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 a nation or a group of individuals in the nation who, you know, are, are the expected or intended target of whatever that that action is supposed to be. I guess. I think that that's right, and, and you know, we'll see this in a number of different areas. One would be individuals or companies, businesses that are subject to targets or freezing asset uh, restrictions. It's not the same list between Canada, US, UK, EU, but by and large, it's a lot of the same individuals, the same companies who are targeted by all of these sanctions regimes. Um, Doesn't mean that they all come into force on the same day or the same week, but they are by and large the same. Um, Another area of, of sanctions is restricted goods or technologies. So you may see um, for example, restrictions on export of luxury goods from Canada to certain jurisdictions, and those lists of luxury goods, for example, you know, craft beer out of Canada, um, you may see that on other uh, countries' lists as well. Same thing where you will often target uh, an industry within a country. Um, so oil and gas is often one that is targeted um, because it generates a lot of wealth for foreign countries. So you'll often see similar packages of sanctions um, enforced throughout different jurisdictions. Who has to comply with these sanctions laws? Well, in Canada, generally speaking, um, all of our sanctions will apply to um, persons in Canada, whether you're Canadian or not, whether you are an individual or a corporation or charity. Uh, They also apply to Canadians wherever they are in the world. So this can be important, for example, if you have uh, a Canadian on a board of director in a foreign corporation, Uh, wherever that foreign corporation is incorporated, it may or may not be subject to sanctions in that local jurisdiction, but our sanctions will follow the Canadian wherever they go. Um, Canadian entities uh, investing abroad uh, will also, uh, again, need to uh, carefully consider uh, the entities that they're partner- partnering with, individuals that they're partnering with, et cetera. Um, our sanctions work a little differently, um, or tend to work a little differently than some other jurisdictions uh, like the U.S., um, which is uh, well known to legislate extraterritorially um, in this space. So, for example, a contract that uh, is denominated in U.S. dollars will still attract the application of U.S. sanctions laws. Uh, our laws in this space don't stretch quite that far. With respect to U.S. jurisdiction, um, you know, a company that is listed on a U.S. stock exchange will also be subject to economic sanctions regime. I think, and a practical point for Canadians to remember is there's a lot of dual citizens uh, who may be, you know, living and working in Canada. Um, but if you are a dual citizen, you're working in Canada for a Canadian company, you also need to be aware of the application of U.S. sanctions to you. For the the domestic party who wants to or chooses to deal with those sanctioned individuals, uh, you know, notwithstanding the sanction, what are the consequences for them of, of crossing that line? The consequences for a, a Canadian or a person in Canada under our regime are severe. This is not a cost of doing business 
um, type penalty. Conversely, because this is penal legislation, then uh, for the Crown to move forward with a prosecution, for example, they would need to prove both an actus reus and a mens rea. So there needs to be a willful intent to violate one of the sanctions prohibitions. There needs to be proof of that, or at the very least, willful blindness. Uh, but the penalties can be quite severe, and they can range from very steep fines uh, for individuals and corporations to terms of imprisonment um, for individuals up to a maximum of five years if the Crown were to proceed by way of indictment. Presumably, if the corporation is subject to those proceedings, there's personal criminal liability risk for directors and officers too. Um, I mean, given obviously the reality of the multinational businesses and international M&A activity, it may not always be clear-cut um, who you're dealing with and what their involvement is and where they're even located. So what options um, are available for a business that is contemplating commercial activity um, in or with a country that may be subject to economic sanctions? The first thing to keep in mind is, is to really is to, to do due diligence as early as possible, both in terms of, you know, the country that you're looking at doing business with. So what are the what are the current economic sanctions that are being imposed against that country? You may want to look at other jurisdictions and see what they're doing. Um, you know, there may be additional economic sanctions that follow, um, which may, you know, the business that you're doing today may be okay, but, you know, five, six months down the road, the company that you're doing business with may be then subject to economic sanctions. And then what are you going to do? How do you wind down that business? Um, you'll be wanting to look at the business partner that you're potentially going to be doing business with, doing due diligence on them, uh, the ultimate beneficial owner. So you're going to want to look up um, the chain of companies and see who ultimately controls the company. You'll want to look at management and the board of directors, see if there's any sanctioned individuals who are on those, um, uh, who are kind of controlling the entity. You need to be actively asking questions. Every Canadian, Canadian business that is looking to do business abroad right now um, needs to be asking questions about their counterparts. They need to be finding out who it is that they're doing business with. And um, if red flags do appear, um, they need to actually dig in and explore. Um, it needs to be, I think, a conversation um, that Canadian companies are taking up as a part of um, um, as a part of their general compliance um, when entering into a transaction, whether it's a purchase and sale transaction, whether it's a joint venture, um, whatever it is, they need to have in mind that their antenna are up, they're asking questions, they're having the conversations, and then they're documenting their file. The documentation is is important. It's asking questions, asking follow-up questions, getting copies of documentation, verifying the documentation, um, you know, and where there is resistance to, to having these open discussions, do you actually be wanting to do business with this entity? So it's really interesting. That diligence leads, I think, to the logical question of what you, what you can do with it if you find yourself in a circumstance where, say, a long-standing business partner finds themselves subject to sanction and that business partner and their, you know, their supply of revenue is critical to what you do in Canada. I mean, what are your options if you... Uh, you have a change of circumstance where someone you've been working with it, it faces sanctions and you've done your diligence and it's a relationship that you want to persist with. Um, are there exceptions? Are there ways to work around sanctions? Uh, how can you be strategic in sort of going about maintaining that relationship in the face of something like this? 
Well, I think that's the starting point is to ask yourself, is this a relationship that you can and should maintain, right? Um, or is this a relationship that um, is is no longer one that that you should be maintaining? You review the co- the contracts that are in place. Um, you review whether or not there is a contractual release through a force majeure clause or a compliance with laws clause um, to assess your own potential liability uh, if you need to get out of the contract or you're no longer able to comply. Um, there are tools within uh, the um, sanctions legislation as well. Um, just speaking to the Special Economic uh, Measures Act, there are um, some exceptions that are often baked into regulations. Uh, it's quite common to see exceptions that would allow Canadians, um, for example, to continue to receive a payment that is owed to the company um, under a contract that had been entered into prior to a person being designated as a designated person. Um, so that that's one instance where that could continue. Um, uh, occasionally, the government will build wind-down clauses into the regulations. It's less common to see in Canada than it is in the United States, but you do see this uh, in some instances where, for example, again, in respect of a, a contract that was in place, and entered into with a foreign person prior to the point in time when that person is sanctioned, you may have a grace period of, say, six months uh, to continue to perform under that contract, understanding that it will need to be wound down by the end of that period unless you obtain a permit. And that's the further step that you could take if an assessment is made that continuing to um, engage in activity under that contract uh, would violate um, sanctions legislation, then you can turn to Global Affairs Canada and put in an application for a permit to continue the activity in some capacity. Um, and then that's something that would ultimately have to be decided by the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And I think it's, um, you know, in respect of putting in a permit application, it is ultimately the Minister of Foreign Affairs who makes a decision. Uh, but it's a completely discretionary decision, and it's a decision for which there is no either legislative legislated timeline to make that decision. Um, so these decisions are not one; they're not automatic, and two, they're not immediate. You may end up waiting, you know, three months, six months, a year. Um, there's a significant backlog before Google Affairs Canada at the moment, who will do the the initial review and screen of a permit application, and ultimately make a recommendation to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, to issue or to deny a permit. Um, so while that is an option, it's absolutely not guaranteed, and that shouldn't be viewed as a way of doing business with you know, a sanctioned party. One of the interesting developments to monitor alongside uh, the proliferation of various laws that we're seeing that you've talked about is the enforcement strategies when it comes to potential sanction violations. Could you talk a bit about um, new enforcement trends that you are seeing? What tactics are being employed? For example, are we seeing more uh, dawn raids, more investigations? And is there an increasing approach to perhaps um, self-disclosure and the RCMP working with companies in that respect when it comes to potential sanction violations? Uh, As Alison mentioned earlier, um, economic sanctions are uh, a criminal it is enforced through criminal means so it is the federal uh, rcmp who will do the investigations and ultimately make recommendations to the prosecutor uh, under the, the federal prosecution service as to whether or not to 
um, lay charges and, and follow through with a criminal case. Um, that being said, in Canada, traditionally, there's not been significant enforcement activity. Um, but I think we are going to be seeing as a trend going forward a lot more um, enforcement activity. The federal government in the last 12 months announced an additional $76 million investment, which will be to the Global Affairs Canada sanctions team to increase staffing, uh, as well as funding for the RCMP to enforce sanctions more robustly. Um, and we think that this is going to help um, to see additional enforcement activity um, going forward as these kind of, you know, staffing um, increases at both Global Affairs and RCMP in relation to enforcement. In addition to the fresh funding that Stephen mentioned a moment ago uh, to help support enforcement as well as um, the uh, triaging of permit applications and requests for guidance into global affairs, the government did amend the Special Economic Measures Act and the Magnitsky Act uh, last year um, in order to introduce a new power for the government to essentially seize and forfeit and then repurpose. Um, assets uh, that are um, believed to belong to um, or uh, be controlled by a designated person. Uh, the Canadian government has already taken some initial steps in this direction using that new tool in the Special Economic Measures Act in order to seek the seizure and forfeiture of assets that are believed to have been under controlled by Roman Abramovich, uh, who is a high profile. Russian oligarch um, and has been listed uh, in Schedule One of the Special Economic Measures Russia regulations. Um, one of the challenges, I think, in the operation of that new tool or the use of the new tool is that um, assets can still fairly easily be shifted, ownership can be transferred. Um, it can be a little bit of a shell game in terms of drilling down to find out who is still owning an asset and whether or not you can trace through for purposes of seizing, seizing and, and having it forfeited to the Crown. Um, but the goal of that tool really was to ensure that the Canadian government could take steps to seize and have um, funds forfeited in order to repurpose them to things like rebuilding a state um, that has been um, the subject of, of the aggression that this, a set of sanctions regulations are, are targeted to, um, to influence in you know, in foreign policy terms. What guidance is there available for companies trying to navigate this proliferation of economic sanctions at the moment? Nothing. There's no Canadian guidance that has been issued, which is somewhat frustrating for, for Canadian businesses who do want to comply with Canada's economic sanctions regime and want to do the right thing. Um, we have heard some discussion that there may be some forthcoming guidance, that there is a draft, but um, there's nothing that has been released to date. Um, this is in sharp contrast to Canada's allies, particularly the U.S., where there's significant FAQs from OFAC. You can go to OFAC, you can ask them you know, kind of no-names opinions, uh, how they would view U.S. sanctions legislation, how it would be interpreted on specific facts. It's also very different from the U.K. and the EU, where there's also significant um, economic sanctions guidance. What did get issued by Global Affairs Canada was on April 1st, 2022. They took the unusual step of publishing uh, an advisory to Canadian businesses on Canada's sanctions related to the Russian invasion on Ukraine. Um, 
and it doesn't actually provide guidance on how to interpret the regulations or, or how or its sanctions, but rather indicates that Canadian businesses should or must comply with Canada's economic um, measures, um, and that Canada will enforce its sanctions regime. Why is there such opacity? Given the severity of the consequences for non-compliance, why there is such opaqueness um, by GAC? Is it a resourcing issue or is there is there anything else at play here? And how does that lack of guidance play into um, perhaps your defence strategy? Well, just to, to jump in on one point, we do now have a tool, uh, a searchable tool that is fairly comparable to a searchable tool maintained by OFAC. Um, there is a place on Global Affairs site where you can search uh, the names of individuals, companies across all of the regulations that have been enacted under the Special Economic Measures Act, as well as the Magnitsky Act, um, in order to determine whether or not the individual or, or company in question is subject to sanctions uh, somewhere. So that is an improvement. Um, that tool does come with a disclaimer, though, which is that it's not an official statement on whether or not you know an individual or or a company that you populate and, and search across that database is in fact a sanctioned person. And occasionally, spelling errors, uh, for example, are are made, and so uh, you might not in fact pick up um, through that search tool a, a person who's been sanctioned. The the best. The best approach is still to go back to uh, the regulations themselves, which will list within the body of the regulations in a schedule all of the persons that have been designated um, uh, for purposes of, of those sanctions. In terms of why GAC hasn't moved to publish broader guidance on um, any of the, the sanctions legislation or the key terms that you see used throughout um, the regulations, um, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, it's been a, an issue for some time. There was a parliamentary committee um, that looked into sanctions back in 2017 and a recommendation made that guidance should be published um, at that time. We still haven't seen it. Um, as Stephen mentioned, it is a challenge. <laughs> it is a challenge for companies that are looking to comply and looking to understand our sanctions. It's also a significant challenge for individuals, even retirees uh, who have their funds, for example, uh, in international banks um, uh, who are, are inadvertently uh, caught by our sanctions um, because funds are uh, transiting through a correspondent bank that happens to be sanctioned, for example. Um, all of these individuals and corporations now um, are either turning to uh, people like Stephen and I for advice to understand um, how to uh, interpret and comply with our sanctions, or they're turning directly to global affairs. And that is um, what is compounding the resourcing issues uh, with global affairs right now. And I, I think an important point um, to flag on the, the lists is that while there are searchable lists online, they're not entirely perfect. And, and that's not and that shouldn't be the start and the end of your due diligence. We're talking a bit about due diligence and what's required. It is a helpful tool, but you also have to look at it at other factors. And you know, you may be a subsidiary of an entity who's been sanctioned. Um, in the US, there's also what they call the 50% rule. So you have to look not just at the entity that is on that OFAC list, but also entities that are 50% or more 
owned by those entities. So you have to look down the chain or up the chain. It's not just, are you listed or are you not listed? That actually kind of brings up an interesting point. Unlike a bill which goes through parliament and you have an idea that this piece of legislation is coming and you may have to take steps to um, become compliant with the legislation, economic sanctions regulations um, are simply announced by by Global Affairs Canada. They're posted on the website. They then go into the uh, the Canada Gazette. They come into a, into force as soon as they are enacted and announced. Um, so there is they are quick moving. They do change rapidly, or they can change rapidly. And in a few instances, Global Affairs Canada has actually retroactively imposed sanctions. So they came into a force a day or two before they were actually publicly announced, which could actually put you into a position of non-compliance or breach of the economic sanctions legislation. It's one of the issues that has um, compounded some of the challenges with respect to compliance, because you have to actively be on the alert if you do have, for example, investments in a jurisdiction that's subject to sanctions. As Stephen mentioned, sometimes uh, a new slate of designated persons will be posted on Global Affairs site, and that list will take effect as of, for example, midnight. The list could go up just minutes to midnight. Right? Um, by the same token, some of the sanctions uh, that are being put into place are a much broader, um, broad categories uh, of goods um, that may be prohibited for export or or import. Again. Um, many of these prohibitions will take effect as soon as they are posted. Um, there is some greater effort, I think I can see, being made uh, to include wind-down clauses, um, which again aligns the approach a little bit more closely to what the U.S. will commonly do. The U.S. will often, when they publish new sanctions, will give uh, regulatees a period of time to adjust uh, and ensure there's, for example, uh, an orderly wind down of a transaction or uh, the orderly wind down of a business. Um, I think we're seeing some movement in that direction in Canada, but um, it's it's not a guarantee. In some cases, you will be potentially offside immediately, and then you'll need to determine what steps to take. You might need a permit in those circumstances in order to carry out the wind down of a transaction. Uh, or of a business, in circumstances where you can demonstrate that the grant of a permit is aligned with Canada's foreign policy goals in connection with the sanctions in question, you will normally stand in better stead in securing that permit. And say then that company is doing its diligence and it realizes that it in fact maybe has engaged in business with someone who's subject to sanctions and violation of those sanctions, what are they to do at that point in time? Do they wave the white flag and report themselves? Do they try to deal with it internally? I mean, what's the best approach for that kind of situation when you've discovered that it's happened? I think one of the first things to do is to, to look at exactly what had happened, determine the facts, um, who was involved. Was it an accidental, you know, a mistake? Was it someone acting on purpose? Um, as you said, it's not one size fits all. So you're going to have to look very much at the, at the facts, what happened jurisdictions involved? Is it only Canada? Is it other sanctions regimes that have been implicated? Um, you know, broadly, in the last couple of years, the RCMP has been encouraging more self-disclosure generally. Um, there is a unit within the RCMP that will deal with and, and investigate economic sanctions issues. Um, you know, they're, they're willing to have those discussions and to have those disclosures. Um, doesn't mean that they will automatically you know, recommend prosecution, but they're definitely open to 
having those discussions and, and to hearing um, from Canadian businesses who may be in breach. Um, of course, it is criminal legislation, so there is no obligation to report the commission of a crime in Canada, um, but it is, uh, you know, becoming more and more recommended to self-disclose. And we just did a fascinating episode on re uh, remediation agreements with some of our colleagues uh, from Montreal who were involved in the first remediation agreement uh, in Canada since that legislation was introduced. But I take it that uh, a remediation agreement approach wouldn't be available. I mean, international sanctions violations aren't among the categories of conduct or misconduct for which a, a remediation agreement would be an appropriate response. So that's that's not a path out here when, at least as far as the status quo is concerned, if, if you have discovered a breach. That's correct. So economic sanctions offenses are not included within the, the remit of you know what would be available for a mediation agreement um but that may ultimately go to you know if the conduct is so offensive that the rcmp recommends that charges be laid um you know and then the company decides to plead guilty for example that may be a mitigating factor the fact that you actually did self-disclose that to the rcmp as opposed to not self-disclosing it and waiting for that to come to the regulator's attention um which you know then may require more investigation and government resources which would ultimately impact you know, the penalty or the fine that may be agreed to or imposed. Allison, Stephen, so often we end these episodes by reflecting on how what we've just heard about, it, you know, sounds like it's in a state of flux. So if you'll indulge us, we'll, um, we'll, we'll very gladly invite you back if you'll, um, if you'll make time for us. So thank you very much for, for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.